Dear congregation, we just sang in that last verse there of his captive people. Imagine you were such a person, a captive, in a strange land, in the midst of oppressors, where everyone was mean and cruel, and you had also become mean and cruel. And life was misery. And your boy, he said to you, Dad, why are we here like this? Was it always this way? And you had to say no. Once we enjoyed peace and prosperity and riches. It's a wonderful place we were in. Yes, but why are we here now then? You had to say, we rebelled against the king. That's why we're here in this misery. And in that condition, you could understand why there would be this desire, oh, that God might early bring his captive people home. Is there a way back to what we were like before? Do you get the, do you get the picture? Why we begin this way when we talk come to Lord's Day 3 as we deal with why are we the way we are? In this fallen world of misery and of sin and of so much wrong, was it always this way? And the answer of the word of God is no. We were created so different. And that's what makes our present reality so terrible. and makes us ask, is there a way to be restored? Come, let us... Listen to these things that are revealed in the Word of God and summarized in Lord's Day 3 under the theme, Confessing our, the Truth of Our Willful Ruin. Confessing the Truth of Our Willful Ruin. Four points. First, our original heights. Second, our woeful fall. Third, our utter destruction, and fourth, our gracious restoration. Confessing the truth of our willful fall, our original heights, our woeful fall, our utter destruction, and our gracious restoration. First then, our original heights. We begin with something very basic. There could be a lot of questions about God creating and God letting the fall happen and and why was that all, but one thing has to shed light over all that we read in Genesis 1 through 3, and that is this, who God is. Is. What is God like? God is, what would you say, children? God is. One of the words that may come to mind is God is good. Right? Sometimes or always? Always. God is just very good, but no, God is perfectly good. He is goodness itself. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, Thou art good and doest good. That's who God is. God is also right and just. That's what Moses confessed in the end of his life, in that song of Deuteronomy 32, where he said, He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. 
a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. And because this is who God is, all that God does, which flows out of who God is, is good and right. The good God does what's good. The righteous God does what's righteous and just and perfect, free of all wrong. Unbelief looks around and says, but, but was that all good? The fall and sin and all those things and faith begins with this. God is good and his work is perfect. That may seem simplistic, but that's the simplicity of faith that embraces the word of God and views everything from the perspective of who God is. And because he's good, what he did was good. What he created was good. Genesis 1 makes so clear that God is the one who created everything. He created the light and the seas and the dry land and the fish and the birds and the animals. And after every day we read, and God saw what he made, and it was good. Time after time after time in Genesis 1. And then you come to the sixth day when God said, let us make man after our image. And he formed man out of the dust of the ground and he breathed into man and he became a living soul. And when God saw all that he had made, it says at the end of Genesis 1, he said, behold, it was very good. Very good, especially Adam as that crown piece of his creation. Just just look at how God made mankind. God created him in his own image, chapter 1 says. We reflected the character of God. When you look in a mirror, what do you see? You see yourself. Well, it's not yourself. It's an image of yourself, a picture of yourself. It shows you what you're like. We were created in the image of God, and we showed as we were created, what God is like. Not physically. God doesn't have a body like we do. But in terms of that character, what is it to be in the image of God? We can know what it was by what it is to be restored in the image of God. In Ephesians 4, verse 24, we read of the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So if the restored man is created in righteousness and holiness, it means that that original man that was created was created in righteousness and holiness. And that's why we confess that in the Catechism, that God created man good and in his image in righteousness and holiness. We were created righteous. God is righteous. He created us as a creature who is righteous. And so God and us fit together perfectly. All that God was, was perfectly reflected. There was no disjunction between us and God. We were right with God. And everything we did and everything we thought, God looked at and said, it's right, it's right, it's right. We were righteous. We were holy. Holy, dedicated unto God our maker. Everything within us was devoted to God. God could look into the depths of our hearts and everything was for God. We were holy and righteous. And we were that. And God could rejoice in man as his image bearer. And man, in turn, could know his God and maker. That made us so special. God created us with a soul whereby we could know God, our maker. We were created to know him, 
Know his glorious attributes. Know his wonderful works. Know him as we saw his work in the, in the creation around us. Know him as he would walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. And knowing God, love God. Can't be otherwise. To know God is to love God. And to, as it says here, heartily love all your heart and mind and soul and strength and everything within you, all of our being flowed in love to God. We could, if I can use that expression, look God in the eye as a window into our soul full of love. And in that way, enjoy God. Enjoy his love. Enjoy his glory. Enjoy his presence. Enjoy God. And live with him in happiness. Happiness is living with God. Happiness is delighting in God. We sing it from Psalm 43, don't we? God, my God, my boundless joy. And if a fallen sinner saved by grace can sing of God, his God, his boundless joy, then what must that have been for Adam as perfect and holy and righteous and full of love to be able to sing, God, my God, my boundless joy. That's how we were created. And so to praise and glorify God forever. What a beautiful creation. As God in his word leads us back to how we were created, it becomes so clear that that God created us so good. And good can be just such a bland word sometimes, but in the word of God, it's such a beautiful word. God could delight in us. And we could delight in the infinite, matchless, boundless God, oh, what heights we were created in. It all confirms this basic truth with which we began this point, that God is good and does and makes what's good. In congregation, to feel the shock and the terribleness of the fall, we must begin here with our beautiful creation. There was nothing lacking that we had to leave God to find something else to satisfy. There was nothing hurtful that would give us reason to leave God and go elsewhere to find something helpful. No, all was beautiful. That's how God made us. And that's what we turned our backs on. We have to begin here in our good creation and not in our birth as sinners. Because if we just focus on our birth as sinners so easily, we can begin to think, well, that's just how we were made. That's just how it's always been. No. It's not how we were made. We were created. We were created in perfection. It wasn't always that there was just sin and, and good in a battle with each other. That's what heathen philosophies say. It's just always been that way. There's always been good and evil in this, in this universe. No, we were created good. And when we think of that, then it makes our present reality so much worse, isn't it? It was so different before. Like that one in exile, hearing of all the prosperity before makes deeper still the present woe. And that's what we come to in our second point. The depths of our misery are shown in our woeful fall. Our woeful fall. Life is so different now from what we've just described, isn't it? We no longer fulfill the purpose of our creation to glorify God and to enjoy Him. Why is that? Well, I said it already, and children, you know why. 
You know what happened with Adam and Eve. Remember they had that, that garden that God placed them in, that beautiful park where they had all they could desire. And God had one command. Do you see that tree in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You may eat of all the other trees, but of that tree you may not eat. Because the day you eat thereof, you shall die. If they kept that command, they would live forever. If they disobeyed that command, they would die. And we can begin to wonder, why did God Why did God have that command? Why didn't he just leave that out? Wouldn't it have been so much better? And there would be no disobedience of it. There'd be no fall. There'd be no... We can start to try and reason. And before you know it, what we're doing is we are suspecting God of being bad giving that command. But God was not bad in giving that command. We go back to the beginning. God is good, and everything he does is good. Let's be most afraid of suspecting God, finding fault with him. It's an evil heart of unbelief. God is good. Why that command? It was a test, wasn't it? God did not just create robots who could not do anything else than do what he he commanded them to do, programmed them to do. No, he created living creatures with a will, and he wanted willing obedience. And he also tested the willingness of that obedience by this one command, which was easy enough to keep. It wasn't a difficult command. It was a test. And that test indeed came And that one day, remember children, Adam was there, Eve was there. We don't know exactly where Adam was, but at this point, Eve was there near that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as she's there, there is this serpent, this snake there, and that snake begins to speak. And that snake says, hath God said? She should have right away be on her alert. What is this voice that she had never heard before? This voice that is questioning the word that God had spoken to them. She begins to discuss. Discuss with the serpent, with, with Satan. And when we begin to discuss with Satan, we're on dangerous ground. And before you know it, Satan is not just questioning. Satan is saying, what God told you is not true. He begins with questioning, and then he ends up saying, that word is not true. You will not die if you eat it. God is actually withholding from you something that will be good for you, that you will become as gods, and you will know good and evil, and you will be uh, even greater than you are now. And they see, she sees that fruit, that it's desirable to make one wise. And she stretches out her hand, She plucks it, and she puts it to her mouth, and she eats it, and she deliberately gives it to her husband, Adam, and he also deliberately, knowingly eats it as well. And the moment they do so, they die, spiritually. They've cut through that life bond with God and they plunge into spiritual death. They die. You see the, the, the fruits of that immediately after. There's no longer that, that bond with God. The God who was God, their God, their boundless joy now comes to them and they're afraid and they run away and they hide in the bushes. They want to get away from that God and they feel ashamed that they never felt before. They feel exposed in a way they never felt before because there is the shame of sin and the guilt of sin that is upon them. And before you know it, Adam is accusing 
punishing Eve. Eve gave me the fruit. He's wanting the punishment to come on Eve rather than on himself. There's no longer love between them and there's no longer love to God. It's all fallen. Just that one action of taking some fruit to eat has such devastating consequences. Because it was not just one little thing that you say, oh, just a little thing. It was no little thing. It was a declaration of war against God. He told me not to eat, but I'm going to rebel against him, and I'm going to eat anyway, and I'm going to listen to someone who tells me he's a liar. That's what it was. And so Adam and Eve fell. And the world has never been the same since. From where came our depravity? Not from God. God God didn't create us as sinners. But from our fall and disobedience of our first parents. Again, also here, our minds can begin to go and we can begin to think, I know God created us good. God is not to blame, but Adam then, he's the one who ate. I can't help it that Adam ate. It's not my fault that we fell. Adam's fault we fell. Have you thought that? I have. You too. So easily we try to shift the blame. We have no chance to be perfect. Adam had the chance and he lost it. Where will we go with those thoughts? Will we again begin to lay the blame elsewhere and, and And ultimately, blame God for arranging it that way that Adam would fall and that that we would be sinners? Or do we go back to that great reality we began with? God is good, and all that he does is good, and all that he arranges is good also in this all event. Also in him, connecting us with Adam. We're very individualistic today. We tend to think of ourselves just all on our own, especially in America, more so even than other other cultures and other places of the world. It's me on my own, doing my own thing, thinking my own thing, responsible for my own actions and not responsible for what other people do, as if we're all just pebbles on a beach, isolated units on their own. But that's not how how the Lord arranged it. God did not create all little individuals who are just independent of each other. God created humanity and established Adam as the representative of all of mankind, as the head of all of mankind. When you think of a head, you can think of a king. A king is over the whole country. And if the king declares war, then the whole country is at war. And if a king incurs a great debt, the whole country is responsible to pay that debt. The king represents the country. And so Adam was ordained by God to represent all of mankind and act on behalf of all of mankind. That's what the Word of God teaches. That's so clear in Romans 5, isn't it? That's why we read Romans 5, where it contrasts Adam and Christ. Ultimately, God only sees two people, Adam and Christ, and everyone else is either represented by Adam or Christ, as Adam as their head or Christ as their head 
and representative acting on their behalf. That's how God designed it, different than the angels. The angels were all individuals, and some fell, and once they fell, it was over. Because as an individual, they could not save themselves. It's lost. God dealt with humanity through this principle of headship with Adam. You see it here in verse 12 of Romans 5. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, sin, Adam opened up the door for sin and it entered into this world. And as it came in, it came upon all of mankind and brought all of mankind in its grip. And with sin came death, it says. Death came at the heels of sin and also brought all of mankind under death. As by one man, sin came into the world. Death by sin. Later on, it says, through the offense of one, many be dead. And by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. We were made sinners by this one man's disobedience. That was God's way of a head. And as a result, judgment has come. As it says there, the judgment was by one to condemnation. By the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. God is showing us Adam's one offense resulted in condemnation and death upon all of mankind. As the Puritans taught their children under the letter A in their primer, they had that little rhyme, in Adam's fall we sinned all. That's what the Word of God teaches. Unbelief can argue with that arrangement. Unbelief can say, why should God do so, and why didn't, and why this, and why that? But faith bows and says, amen, it's true. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Adam was like the trunk of humanity. And all the rest of humanity were like so many little branches. And you and me are like little twigs there on that great tree of humanity. And there's Adam the trunk. And that trunk was cut through. And that trunk came down. And that trunk took with it all the other little branches. And they all fell to sin. We're bound to Adam by nature. He's our father. And as a result, we are all conceived and born in sin. We call that original sin, the sin in which we are born, that involves original guilt, that the moment there's a record for us, there's guilt on that record before God. There's not a moment that God creates a record for us and, has no, and says it's innocent. The record is. As soon as we come into existence, we have a record, and that record says guilty. And as soon as we have a heart, that heart is sinful. Never once was it clean. That is our utter destruction, our third point. Our utter destruction. And if we, if we resist that, and say, is it really that bad? Just ask yourself this question. Why do we sin? Why? What good does sin do for us? It seems to get you ahead, seems to give you pleasure, seems to for a moment, but look back in your life. What good has sin done you? And you look back, you think of times where you realize the bitterness of sin, perhaps, and you thought, I'll never do that again, and you did it again. Why? And you look back in history, and you see all that's happened because of sin. 
and yet we continue sinning. Why? And we have the Word of God, and it tells us what sin really is, that sin is the worst thing in the world, that sin is what so dishonors God and brings judgment upon ourselves, and yet we sin, and the question comes, why? Don't you think we would learn? Don't you think we would realize sin is a foolish thing to do, so we're not going to sin anymore, we're going to be good. And yet the reality is that sin continues. You found it in your own heart, and I found it in mine. And the question is, why? Why is there this sin? Is it because other people have taught us to sin, and other people have said it's, a, it's really a good thing to lie, and you should lie, and another person says, says, here, let me show you how to steal, and the other person says, let me show you what a temper is like so that you can do it too. Is it because they teach us to sin? No. It's because it's there in our hearts from our very beginning, and it just as we grow up comes out because it's already there in our hearts. The Lord Jesus said it. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. If you think it's not so bad, listen to the word of God. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean not one. That means we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. Do you believe that? Naturally, we always think it's not so bad. I know I do some sinful things. I know there's some things which I, I should really be doing. but wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. Isn't that a rather negative and, and pessimistic view of men? This isn't just pessimism. This is reality. When we don't ask man, what do you think about man? But when we ask God, and we ask him to tell us what we are, then he tells us, he tells us in that psalm that we sang, that psalm that is quoted also in Romans 3, when God, it says, God looked to see if there was any that understood, and there was any that sought God, and he saw there was none, and he said, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is none that is righteous, no, not one. And you sitting here and me standing here are not the one exception to what God saw. All of us. There's none that's good, not one. The Lord Jesus uses that example. Do men gather grapes, thorns, or figs of thistles? Do you go to your flower gardens and look for a thorn and think, oh, maybe there's some grapes here that we, those delicious, juicy grapes that we can enjoy on a hot summer day. Do you do that? You know that the nature of a thorn is to produce thorns and not grapes. It's impossible for that thorn to produce grapes because that's not its nature. And the Lord Jesus saying, is saying, so it is with you. As long as you are in your natural condition, the only thing that you will ever produce is thorns and not the fruits of good works. No matter how nice you may appear and look on the outside, no matter how many times someone else can say that you're a good kid, if you're not born again, all you produce in the sight of God is thorns. The Lord may restrain that sinfulness of your heart 
and you can thank God for doing so, by Him restraining the sinfulness of your heart doesn't make your heart good and pleasing to God. You can take a lion, a lion or a tiger, a tiger which when it sees prey, it goes after it and pounces and it kills it. You put it in a zoo and you see it there. As you go into the zoo and you see it, the sun is shining and it's laying there and it looks so peaceful and it looks so nice. It almost looks so nice that you'd want to go and pet it. But would you? No, because its nature hasn't changed just because it's being restrained there in its pen. And so it is. Even if that wickedness is restrained, it's still there. By nature, we are inclined, we are incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. That's what, the Lord, or that's what the Lord said in Jeremiah 13. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that is, are, are accustomed to do evil. That leopard can't get rid of his spots. It's impossible. And so the Lord is saying it's impossible for those who are bent on sin to do what's good. It's the word of God. And his word is truer than anything we can feel or think about ourselves or others. Look at also that other text that's there in Genesis 6 verse 5. God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. That's already a devastating statement. Before the flood, God looked and he saw the earth and he saw the wickedness of man was great. But it doesn't end there. And it says, And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Everything in his heart, God says, is only evil continually. Can it get any worse than that? And that wasn't just because before the flood people were so sinful. If you read after the flood, God says he will not destroy the earth again with a flood because man's heart is corrupt and it uses similar language. This is what we are by nature. It's devastating. We're unable to do good. And we're prone to do evil. And this isn't just a, the helpless inability of a victim. This is a willful disobedience and going against God. The Lord Jesus said, Ye will not come to me that ye may have life. You do not want to come to me. Our will is corrupted. He he lamented in Psalm 80, my people would not hearken to my voice in Israel, would none of me, did not want me. That's our corruption. Again, it's not a pleasant message. It's humbling. But this is the truth of the word of God. Unbelief can resist it. Proud religious unbelief can resist it. But he calls for faith. To bow under this message and say, O Lord, it's true. Thy diagnosis is accurate. Unable to do good. Prone to do evil. And that's the way we're born. It gives a depth to the problem of our sin, doesn't it? There's no one here who still thinks that it's just that sometimes I do some bad things. And I need help to overcome a few of those bad things in my life. And if I could just overcome maybe even that one thing that really comes to mind that you do that's wrong, if you could just be done with that, then you'd be good. No. The heart of our problem is our heart. It's a fountain of evil. We were born that way. 
And that reason, with Psalm, Psalm 51, when David realizes it, he realizes, I haven't just sinned with Bathsheba, and I haven't just murdered Uriah, but Lord, I have this evil heart. Create in me a clean heart. Lord, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's what he came to confess. Have you as well? Come to trace the root of your problem to your heart and the desperate wickedness of your own heart. Lord, indeed, incapable of doing anything good. When that comes home, you stand in need, in deep need, Because we were created, as we saw, we were created to glorify God and enjoy God and delight in God and be all for God. And the reality is that we fail to and we cannot do so because we are so corrupt and we don't even want to of ourselves. What a, a terrible condition to be in to discover those realities. I must, but I cannot. And if that is your condition tonight, can you be content to remain in such a condition? in that misery, in that ruin, in that corruption? Or does it stir up that desire to be restored, to be restored again? Is there a way to be restored? It's our final point, a needed restoration. When that truth comes home, you can understand why the disciples asked, who then can be saved? And that the Lord Jesus said, with man it is impossible. We were created so high, we plunged so low, we destroyed ourselves utterly, and therefore it's impossible for us to, to, to pick ourselves up and to fix ourselves and to make us ourselves whole and healthy again and live to our God's honor again. With man, God says it's impossible. And if there's anyone here who's run stuck and feels I cannot restore myself, I cannot fill my heart with love to God and joy in God and praise to God and the knowledge of God, and I've ruined myself, I've destroyed myself, what you discover is reality. The Lord Jesus says it, with man it's impossible. But my friend, that's only half of what he says. The other half is this, but with God all things are possible. In other words, he he contrasts that impossibility of man with the ability of God and the greatness of his power. And it's the greatness of his power which comes in service to his grace and salvation. Because they asked, who can be saved? He said, with God, all things are possible. Also, that's salvation. That is the gospel. And that's why this catechism answer doesn't end with Indeed we are, but it ends with that unless, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God, there is an almighty Spirit of God who is able to come to ruin sinners and make them new again, and that begins in regeneration, regeneration, children, that's simply to have a new heart, to be born again, and that's exactly what God does. He finds ruined sinners who don't love him and don't serve him and don't delight in him. And he comes and he recreates them and makes them new again. And when we ask, how can that be? How can he just make them new again? That's because of the one we read of in Romans 5. I said in Romans 5, there's two We focus on Adam, but the other contrast there in Romans 5 is Christ. He is the second Adam. And we read of him in Romans 5 as the one who did all that Adam failed to do. Adam disobeyed, but we read in Romans 5, as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Do you see it? God sent his own son into this fallen world of misery and sin and death and ruin. And he came and he was tempted. 
by the serpent, not just once, countless times. And he stood, and he fulfilled all righteousness. Now, why did he do it? Not just as an individual for himself. Remember what we said? God deals with people through heads, through representatives. He did it as a head and representative. He did it on behalf of others. He did it on behalf of all those whom the Father gave him, who were ruined, lost sinners. He is the righteous one. And that's why Romans 5 can say, through him many are made righteous. And can also say that through him many the grace abounds all the more such that there's forgiveness and there's pardon and there's deliverance from, from condemnation and there's life forevermore. This God, he sees ruined sinners and he takes them. Remember I spoke of Adam, that tree that's fallen, that tree that's dead, and all we're all little branches, what does God do? He takes off those branches one by one. And he unites them to Jesus Christ. And the moment you're united to Jesus Christ, you begin to live. You have a new heart. You're made a new creation. You're part of God's new creation in Jesus Christ. That's how there can be a restoration in Jesus Christ. Then you begin to live. You begin to know God again. You begin to love God again. You begin to desire holiness again. It's the power of Christ, that new head and belonging to him. Aren't you then so thankful? That God deals with us not just as all individuals who have to do it on our own, then it'd be lost. He dealt with Adam, us through Adam, and Adam fell, and we fell with him, and he's provided this second Adam through which there's life forevermore. And that's why he preaches to us, he tells us about the first Adam, so that we would realize the desperateness of our natural condition, and that we need one greater than ourselves and greater than Adam, to second Adam, and he's preached to us so that in all our need, we would look to him. And why, why does he give that grace through Christ? Is it not for this reason? When Adam fell and all mankind with him, we lost God. But God also lost his creature. God lost us to sin. And God would not let sin have the final word. And God would not let his justice condemning sin simply have the final word and have none of those creatures which he created live and love and glorify him world without end. No, he wanted his creatures back again. And that is why he sent his son. And that is why he gathers to his son. And that is why he makes the, to the praise of the glory of his grace at the wonder of your life. I fell in Adam. God didn't leave me in my ruin. He's restored me back. Is that what makes you long for more? Makes you long for the fullness of that restoration to again love him with unsinning heart, to glorify him forevermore. To be in that place where Christ must have the preeminence and where it's no longer possible to sin. Adam and Christ proclaim to us in the word of God so that we would be convinced in our hearts there is only one comfort. 
That's not to belong to Adam, not to belong to myself, but to belong with body and soul, in life and death, to a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that your only comfort? Having heard of what we were and have become by our fall, only one comfort, to belong to him. Amen. O Lord God, thou art our maker, and thou hast indeed made us so very good. There is no flaw, no defect in us as coming forth from thy hand. We thank thee for thy goodness as the creator. And we confess before thee the willfulness of our fall and our inexcusableness in willfully sinning against thee as fallen sinners. O Lord, we are so prone to try to shift the blame, but do not let us do so, but that we'd own our guilt and the desperate wickedness of our natural hearts, and that it would leave us with Christ and Christ alone as that second Adam who makes all things new for ruined sinners. O Lord, we pray that we may indeed be found in him, and being found in him, may walk in the greatest humility on account of what we've been and on account of the exceeding greatness of thy grace in him. We pray, Lord, to continue thy work of restoring fallen sinners in Christ throughout the world. Wilt thou also continue to sanctify and fill with a desire for holiness and to love thee We pray also to keep us in this week. Help us in our various tasks and callings. Keep us safe and from sin. Receive our thanks, O Lord, for thy word. And hear us in thy mercy, for Jesus' sake alone. Amen.